Section 13 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An Incident of the Campaign Colonel Thomas Junius Dayton entered the Democratic headquarters on 2nd Street a few nights ago, having been largely engaged, previously, in talking over the political situation, with sugar in it. The first person he saw on entering was an individual in the back part of the room, writing. Colonel Dayton ordered him out. The man would not go, maintaining that he had a right to meet together in Democratic headquarters as often as he desired. The colonel still insisted that he was an outsider and could have nothing in common with the patriotic band of bourbons whose stamping ground he had thus entered. Finally, the excitement became so great that a man was called in to umpire the game and sponge off the hostiles. But before blood was shed, a peacemaker asked Colonel Dayton what the matter was with him. "'Well, this man is a Democrat. I've known him for years. What's the reason you don't want him in here?' "'That's all right,' said the colonel, with his eyes starting from their sockets with indignation. "'You people can be easily fooled. I cannot. I know him to be a spy in our camp. I have smelled his breath and find he is not up in the Ohio degree.' I have also discovered him to be able to read and write. He cannot answer a single democratic test. He is a bogus bourbon, and my sentiments are that he should be gently but firmly fired. If the band will play something in D that is kind of tremulous, I will take off my coat and throw the gentleman over into a vacant lot. I think I know a democrat when I see him. Perhaps you do not. He cannot respond to a single grand hailing sign. He hasn't the canceled internal revenue stamp on his nose, and his breath lacks that spicy election odor which we know so well. Away with him! Fling his palpitating remains over the drawbridge and walk on him. Spread him out on the ramparts and jam him into the culverin. Those are my sentiments. We want no electroplate Democrats here. This is the stronghold of the highly aesthetic and excessively bon ton, Andrew Jackson Peeler, and if justice can't be done to this usurper by the party, I shall have to go out and get an infirm hoe handle and administer about nine dollars worth of rebuke myself. He went out after the hoe handle, and while absent, the stranger said he didn't want to be the cause of any ill feeling, or to stand in the way of the prosperity of his party so he would not remain. He put on his hat and stole out into the night, a quiet martyr to the blind rage of Colonel Dayton, and has not since been seen. Why do they do it? Ben Hill died after suffering intolerable anguish from a tobacco cancer caused by excessive smoking. The consumers of the western-made cigar are now and then getting a nice little dose of leprosy from the Chinese-constructed cigars of San Francisco, and yet people go right on inviting the most horrible diseases known to science by smoking, and smoking to excess. Why do they do it? It is one of those deep, dark mysteries that nothing but death can unravel. We cannot fathom it. That's certain. Uh, give us a light, please. Two Styles 
One of the peculiarities of correspondence is witnessed at this office every day, to which we desire to call the attention of our growing girls and boys, who ought to know that there is a long way and a short way of saying things on paper, a right way and a wrong way to express thoughts on a postal card, just as there is in conversation. We all admire the businessman who is terse and to the point, and we dislike the man who hangs on to the doorknob as though life was a never-ending summer dream and refuses to say goodbye. It's so with correspondence. In touching upon the letters received at this office, we refer to a carload received at this office during the past year, relating to sample copies. Still, they are a good specimen of the different styles of doing the same thing. For instance, here is a line which tells a story in brief, without wearing out your eyes and days by ponderous phrases and useless verbiage. Useless verbiage and frothy surplusage is a cinnamon which we discovered in 75, while excavating for the purpose of laying the foundations of our imposing residence up the gulch. Persons using the same will please fork over 10% of the gross receipts. Bangor, Maine, 11-10-82. Find 10 cents for which send sample copy boomerang to above address. Yours, etc. Thomas Billings. Some would have said, please find enclosed 10 cents. That is not absolutely necessary. If you put 10 cents in the letter, that covers all seeming lack of politeness, and it's all right. If, however, you are out of a job and have nothing else to do but to write for sample copies of papers and wait for the department at Washington to allow you a pension, you might say, please find enclosed, etc. Otherwise, the ten cents will make it all right. Here's another style which evinces a peculiarity we do not admire. It bespeaks the man who thinks that life and its associations are given us in order to wear out the time, waiting patiently, meanwhile, for Gabriel to render his little overture. It occurs to us that life is real, life is earnest, and so forth. We cannot sit here in the gathering gloom and read four pages of a letter which only expresses what ought to have been expressed in four lines. We feel that we are here to do the greatest good to the greatest number, and we dislike the correspondent who hangs on to the literary doorknob, so to speak, and absorbs our time, which is worth five thirty-five per hour. Here we go. New Centerville, Wisconsin, November 3, 1882. Mr. William Nye, Esquire, Laramie City, Wyoming. Dear Sir, I have often saw in our home papers little pieces cut out of your paper, The Laramie Boomerang, yet I have never saw the paper itself. I hardly pick up a paper from the fireside friend to the Christian at work that I do not see something or another from your facetious pen and credited to the boomerang. I have asked our bookstore for a copy of the paper, and he said, go to grass. There wasn't no such periodical in existence. He is a liar, but I did not tell him so, because I am recovering from a case of that kind now, which swelled both eyes shut and placed me under the doctor's care. It was the result of a campaign lie, and at this moment I do not remember whether it was the other man or me which told it. Things got confused, and I am not clear on the matter now. 
I send ten cents in postage stamps, hoping you will favor me with a specimen copy of the boomerang and I may subscribe. I sent postage stamps because they are more convenient to me, and I suppose that you can use them all right as you must have a good deal of writing to do. I intend to read the paper thorough and give my folks the benefit also. I love to read humorous pieces to my children and my wife and hear their gurgly laugh well up like a bobolinks. I now take a nestern paper which is gloomy in its tendencies and I call it the morgue. It looks at the dark side of life and costs three dollars a year in postage. So send the specimen if you please and I will probably subscribe for the boomerang as I have saw a good many entracts from it in our papers here, and I have not as yet saw your paper. So goodbye. Yours truly, James Letson. Gosh all hemlock salve. The bull-whacking, mule-skinning proprietor of a life-giving salve wants us to advertise for him, and to state that, with his gosh all hemlock salve, he can cure all chronical diseases whatever. We would do it if we could, sweet being, but owing to the fullness of the paper and the foreman, we must turn you cruelly away. The Stage Bald Head Most everyone who is not born blind knows that the stage bald head is a delusion and a snare. The only all-wool, yard-wide bald head we remember in the American stage is that of Dunstan Kirk, as worn by the veteran Coldock. Effie Elsler wears her own hair, and so does Coldock, but Coldock wears his the most. It is the most worn, anyhow. What we started out to say is that the stage bald head and the average stage whiskers made us weary with life. The stage bald head is generally made of the internal economy of a cow, dried so that it shines and cut to fit the head as tightly as a potato sack would naturally fit a billiard cue. It is generally about four shades wider than a red face of the wearer, or vice versa. We do not know which is the worst violation of eternal fitness, the red-faced man who wears a deathly white bald head, or the pale young actor who wears a florid roof on his intellect. Sometimes, in starring through the country and playing ten or fifteen hundred engagements, a bald head gets soiled. We notice that when a show gets to Laramie, the chances are that the bald head of the bleeding old man is so soiled that he really needs a sheep-dip shampoo. Another feature of this accessory of the stage is its singular failure to fit. It is either a little too short at both ends, or it hangs over the skull in large festoons and wends and warts in such a way as to make the audience believe that the wearer has dropsy of the brain. You can never get a stage bald head near enough like nature to fool the average housefly. A fly knows in two moments whether it is the genuine or only a base imitation, and the bald head of the theater fills him with nausea and disgust. Nature at all times, hard to imitate, preserves her bald head as she does her sunny skies and deep blue seas, far beyond the reach of the weak, fallible human imitator. Baldness is like fame. It cannot be purchased. It must be acquired. Some men may be born bald. Some may acquire baldness, and others may have baldness thrust upon them. 
but they generally acquire it. The stage beard is also rather dizzy as a rule. It looks as much like a beard that grew there as a cow's tail would if tied to the bronze dog on the front porch. When you tie a heavy black beard on a young actor, whose whole soul would be churned up if he smoked a full-fledged cigar, he looks about as savage as a bowl of mush and milk struck with a club. End of section 13